The Science of Pandora, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Is Avatar a fantasy? Perhaps, but if so, it's the most science-grounded fantasy ever put on the big screen. Today you'll hear its creator, James Cameron, talk about the facts behind the fiction. Bill Nye is back with a commentary phoned in from the road, and Bruce Betts will join me on the road to the night sky when we get together for this week's installment of What's Up. First up is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society blog. Emily, nothing but good news on today's report, beginning with good news about Voyager 2. That's right. It turns out that engineers were quite correct. There was a flipped bit in uh, Voyager's flight data system. They figured out which one it was. They commanded Voyager to flip it back. It did. So it's still not quite transmitting science data yet, but that should start up within a day or two. Excellent. Now, tell us about what was really a whole flotilla of spacecraft that just launched from Japan. That's right. It was one launch vehicle carrying six different spacecraft. It was quite an exciting launch to follow. The major payload was Akatsuki, which is the Venus Climate Orbiter, also known as Planet C. It's going to arrive at Venus in December of this year and uh, go into an equatorial orbit, which is different from Venus Express. That's there now, which is in a polar orbit. Akatsuki was the main payload, but then behind it came Ikaros, the Japanese solar sailcraft that um, hopefully our listeners have heard about before. And and then also headed out to Venus is a spacecraft named Unitech-1. Actually, today I heard it has been renamed Shinin, which is a university-built spacecraft that's broadcasting a ham radio signal. It's the first student-built spacecraft to be sent to deep space. In addition to that, there were three mini-sats that were left in Earth orbit. So it was six, six spacecraft for the price of one launch. Yeah, quite a deal. And those must be very proud uh, university students. Uh, the other piece of good news comes from a spacecraft that has been sending back nothing but good news for years. And that, of course, is Cassini. Tell us about the latest from Enceladus. That's right. It had its 11th flyby of Enceladus. You'd think these things were starting to get routine, but it's never routine at Enceladus. There is always something new. And this time it returned what I would call the most amazing photo I have seen of Enceladus. It's not the most aesthetically beautiful one, I think, but the most amazing one. You have in the foreground the black night side of Enceladus. You can see its ridges and silhouette against Saturn's rings, which are lit from behind. And then behind that, you see titan practically an eclipse with its atmosphere lit from behind by the sun so it's a ring shape rising behind the rings and then enceladus's fountains are crossing the whole image in front of it it's just a, an absolutely mind-bendingly stunning image and mm. please do go to the blog to check it out it is spectacular and uh, I, it's like a four frame sequence it's you're really flying right toward the plumes yes and cassini really does in fact fly right straight through those plumes to sample scoop up little particles that have come out of enceladus and, and taste them with its science instruments. So mm. it's really that exciting. Very tasty. Well, how nice just to get uh, good news. But whatever the news is, uh, we'll check in with you again next week. Talk to you then, Matt. Emily Lakdawalla is the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. I'll be right back with James Cameron and others talking about the science of Pandora. But first, here's Bill. Hey, Bill I, the planetary guy here. I'm on the road. I'm en route. I may be going to Washington, D.C. to attend a hearing where the administrator of NASA, the world's largest space exploration agency, is going to be interviewed by a couple of old astronauts. And by old, I mean people that have been to the moon, have walked on the moon. 
And everybody's concerned that the deck is stacked against Charles Bolden because these people carry considerable weight with us. They are international heroes. They were the single combat warriors that went to this desolate place and made these remarkable discoveries, and so we have great reverence for them. Now, the staff of the Planetary Society from time to time criticizes me when I say this is a generational problem or generational feature, because the implication is that if you're old, you want to go back to the moon. If you're young, you want to go to someplace different. That's not quite right. If you want to go back to the moon, you're almost certainly an older person or an older thinking person. It's the young thinkers, like Dr. Lewis Friedman, who's about to retire, Buzz Aldrin, the second person to walk on the moon. These are generally considered older guys, septuagenarians, octogenarians, but they want to go beyond the moon. Coincidence? You decide. The United States isn't going to be a world leader in space by going back to the moon, a place we went 40 years ago. Well, it's time to go someplace new, exciting, and cool. I know I say this often, but the reason is the debate continues. What seems obvious to many, many members of the Planetary Society is somehow not obvious to congressional leaders who have workers in their districts and want to support that instead of doing exploration. We turn NASA into a jobs program. We're not helping things. Come on, everybody. Let's influence our political leaders and change the world. I got a fly, Bill I the planetary guy. A capacity crowd gathered at the California Institute of Technology's Beckman Auditorium a few weeks ago. A panel of Caltech scientists were joined on stage by the man responsible for Avatar, the wildly successful story that takes place on the fantastic moon of a gas giant planet circling a nearby star. What fascinates me most about James Cameron is that he is both a master storyteller and someone who passionately loves science and the people who conduct it. Cameron was last heard on this program talking about his documentary, Aliens of the Deep. This time, Planetary Radio was given permission to record the entire event. You can find the unedited discussion at planetary.org slash radio. Here are some of the highlights. You'll also hear Caltech astronomer Robert Hurt, who moderated the conversation that evening. We had to create a lot of backstory for the film. And uh, one of my ideas was instead of, you know, zapping around the, the galaxy and jump through wormholes or jump to light speed and all that very fanciful, more distant future stuff, I wanted to make it a kind of uh, a more intermediate future, if you will, where there's some actual uh, technical logic to how they, how, they move, uh, how they move around. So we made it Alpha Centauri AB system so that it's only, you know, 4.4, 4.5 light years away. I mean, you guys know these facts better than me. So anything I say that's wrong, just uh, hold, hold it for the question and answer portion. But uh, the idea they're, they're was... They're we, checking Wikipedia as you talk. Yeah, so we make, it, we make it the closest star system, which means that if it's a sublight travel, it can be reached in some reasonable number of years, and then we collapse that for the main character by, by making him a meat sickle in some kind of uh, cryogenic suspension. Uh, so the idea is it takes them uh, five and a half, I think, or six years to get out there at, at 0.75 C or something like that. The, the ship was configured to be a, a combination uh, antimatter engine and beamed energy from Earth with some you know, giant laser. So that big mirror on the ship is actually a thermal shield. There would have been um, a big light sail at some point that got cut away 
uh, or, or retracted for redeployment later. That mirror just protected the habitable portion of the ship from incineration by the, by the uh, beamed energy. So it would be beamed energy outbound and then uh, use the antimatter engine for deceleration to, into the uh, Alpha Centauri A system. Uh, then it kind of works in reverse on the way back. It's not so, clear you thought about this very much. We thought, about it, <laughs> we thought about it to an unhealthy level. Sure. I tried to make it sort of not completely fanciful technology so that it felt a little more near future and so that it put limitations on the, on the, the future sort of economy of interstellar commerce. Because if you're going to go someplace, first of all, whatever you find has got to be unbelievably valuable, 50,000 times more valuable than gold in the, in the economy of Earth to get it back. Secondly, you're going to refine it there and bring back only the highly refined, maybe even productized, to be brought back. Now, what, the other thing we never say in the film is what unobtainium is for. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, my, my rationale is that unobtainium being a room temperature su superconductor is critical to the, to the containment of, of uh, uh, fusion generating plants, and it's the key to, to the power, the energy economy of, of 22nd century Earth. But uh, we never spell it out because the, the point is that historically it's been gold, it's been spices, it's been animal pelts, it's been diamonds, it's been all kinds of things that have caused the colonialism and imperialism historically. So we didn't need to say what it was uh, because that just made it specific and it, it pushed specific buttons as opposed to just there's always some damn thing that one group needs that the other group is sitting on or has that causes them to get in a ship, go somewhere, and shoot them. That's, that's, that's my thumbnail history of the last 500 years. So... The other clip, the other thing we see in that clip is, uh, of course, the, our, our first introduction to Pandora is the reflection in the, uh, in the radiation shield. And we don't find it uh, a terrestrial planet in the sense of Earth sitting there with a, maybe, a, maybe a small moon or two, but we see it orbiting a gas giant. Why did you choose this uh, kind of unusual scenario of, uh, of a moon orbiting a much larger gas giant to be the, the setting for your world? Initially, really, uh, it, and it, this is true of so many of the images in the film, it just looked cool, you know? <laughs> no, really, I mean, so much of what we did in terms of coming up with this, this very complex backstory was literally just reverse engineering a cool image, floating mountains. Uh, you, you just you have to come up with some kind of rationale. And so it just was, a, I, I figured if, if Pandora was going to look Earth-like with, with uh, you know, uh, continents and, and oceans and, and clouds, just cutting to it in, in space, uh, it would have been hard to, to notice the specifics that made it another planet. But if I put it in orbit around a gas giant, all of a sudden you know that's not Earth. You know it's something else. And the idea that a habitable moon... Uh, you know, it, that, to me, that was an interesting idea. And when this was written in, when it was first written in '95, I wasn't even thinking about Europa or the other possible moons that might harbor life in our solar system. It just seemed like a cool idea. But I mean, so much has been found about the the uh, the, the moons of uh, uh, Jupiter and Saturn that there might be life on Enceladus. There might be life underneath, obviously, in the in the liquid liquid ocean and Europa. That these are really cool ideas. So, so at some level, were you just thrilled that, that science caught up with your imagination, vindicated the idea of <laughs> Jovian worlds orbiting in the habitable zones of, of other stars like, like we've found examples of? Uh, well, yeah, I think it's so, it's so cool. I mean, I hope what, what we can do tonight 
is, is just sort of reconnect with that sense of wonder about what's out there because every time you guys go out and get new, new data, new images, it asks ten, ten times more questions than you probably had when you, when you started. I love that about the way planetary science works. More from Avatar creator James Cameron when we return. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're listening to excerpts from a panel discussion at Caltech that featured Avatar creator James Cameron. The topic that evening was the science of Avatar and Pandora, the faraway moon on which the dramatic story takes place. But what about those floating mountains suspended by magnetic fields? I think it turns out that the, that the, the field would, would have to be strong enough to rip the hemoglobin out of your blood to, to lift, the, lift the mountains. But we're not going there. Why are the Navi blue? And uh, in fact, once someone asks, uh, were you at all inspired by the uh, uh, Ramayana from uh, uh, Hindu mythology? I don't think we ever came up with a good biological reason. There's obviously some... Here's, here's the discussion we had to have internally. Is it the color of the blood that's, that's causing the blue color, or is it the color of a skin pigment that's, that would be the equivalent to melanin in a, in a human? Mm-hmm. And we eventually went with the idea of a pigment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then that determined with, with red blood, which would allow the, the lips, the in, inner part of the lip and the inside of the, the, uh, uh, the mouth and the, the uh, you know, edges of the eyelids and so on to be pink. But, you know, you have, to, you have to think through this stuff in order to create a plausible visual. But we never really figured out what the, what the purpose of the blue pigment was, other than the fact that their camouflage is re- remarkably effective, even in, in the green foliage. See, originally the foliage was supposed to be cyan-colored, not sort of the normal palette of greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it always looked kind of unreal. So we decided to go with, with more of a conventional look by day and then a very unconventional look by night. And we thought, well, now their blue pigment isn't going to camouflage them. But we, f- we found out a few things, like lighting them to look real required a lot of reflected green light on the face. And so when we bathed them in green reflected light from their environment, the blue colors, uh, the, the blue patterning on them actually caused them to disappear pretty well. So. Chemically, I couldn't answer the question, though. Well, that answers that. <laughs> uh, just to sp- Oh, uh, the Ramayana part. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, obviously, I thought that the, the, the Hindu pantheon just looked really cool with the, with the blue skin. I even debated giving them extra arms, but I figured that that would... No, no, it's, it was a serious consideration for a while, but, the, but the, the decision was made that the actors wouldn't be able to physically perform their characters effectively if they had extra arms, that the animators would have to step in and 
and change the performance too much. So we left it with, because every other critter on That's the planet's got six limbs, and the, and the, and the uh, Navi don't. They, ha they have four. So what we did was we showed an intermediate stage with the prolemurus, which is the, the primate that you see kind of, uh, uh, what do they call it, brachiating through the tree. Uh, it actually has a split forelimb that has, so it has two hands on each, on each limb. Uh, so it sort of it looks like it's a transitional state between six and four. That's that's the theory there. But no, I, probably I you, you should great great restraint, not just grafting extra arms onto your cast in order for them to perform for you. I, <laughs> you know, we had to have these head rigs that had to locate a camera very accurately in the front. And we had these conformal carbon fiber headsets that kind of were based on scans of their laser scans of their skulls and so on. And I, I wanted them to be screwed in with stereotactic screws right through the skin. I thought that that's the kind of sacrifice people should make for their art, you know? But the actors wouldn't go for it. I was going to say the unions again, you know. Yeah, maybe the unions. One of the conceits on Pandora was that there was, there, you know, you have the, the, the major phyla of plants and animals here, and, and on Pandora there's actually a third kind of intermediate phylum that, uh, that we called uh, zooplanty that have aspects of both. It's basically a plant with a nervous system that can be motile and react, but it's, you know. Anyway, so that's what we were going to show, was the zooplanty. Zoo and, and those are out there, right? I mean, you know, I, we've seen those as we dive down in the, in the submarines, and, and, uh, and you're coming along this sort of barren world, and, and some of those spiral ones, right, that, that I've, yeah. I've seen those at 3,000 meters deep, sure. and sure enough, you come in too close, and they'll even retract yeah. just like that. It's a tube worm. That, yeah, right? it was awesome when I yeah. saw that in the theater. I thought, hey, he's been the same spot I have. Yeah. Well, they even, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the small ones, the small Christmas tree worms, are, are readily, you know, they're quite abundant on, on coral reefs. Yep. So um, another question someone tossed out to get back to a little bit of the geography, the geology of Pandora is uh, whether you could comment on the volcanic activity that a moon like Pandora would experience due to the tidal forces. We I mean, know it's very active, subject to tidal forces, but we didn't see much in the way of earthquakes or volcanism. Sequel. <laughs> yeah. Volcanoes <laughs> just fell off the to-do list. Uh, really, like, it's not a, not a joke. We, we intended to have them. We were supposed to see them from orbit with actual active plumes, kind of like what just happened recently in, in Iceland. I mean, we actually have artwork that shows that. It, we did the, the last thousand shots in six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Who would win in a fight between the Navi and the aliens, circa 1986 aliens? <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> she always wins. <laughs> What holds more significance to you in this film? These, these technological advances and the changes that's made to the filmmaking process or the philosophical and environmental messaging that you've placed into this film? The reason that we made the film was to, was to get these, uh, they're not even really ideas, it's really to, to connect people back to an almost uh, childlike sense of wonder and connection to nature that we, I think we all feel at some level and maybe we have layers of denial on top of that or we've just forgotten it become become disconnected in our, our technological society that was the goal of the movie but I also knew that if you told people it was an environmental film they wouldn't go see it so you know we had to we you know we had to have a lot of spoonfuls of sugar and and the 3d was part of that the design was part of that the adventure the storytelling the characters all the, all those things that can be communicated in a TV spot or a, or a trailer or whatever that get people into the theaters 
And, and then you have to rely on, on good storytelling to create an emotional reaction. And people cry when the tree falls. And so it's working. And they're coming back to see the movie for all of those things, but also because they, they know that there's, there's an emotional connection to the film. And some would even say a spiritual connection to the film. And if those things weren't working, the film wouldn't have been as successful. If we could take a moment to show our thanks for the panelists tonight who have given a really very fascinating discussion. James Cameron at Caltech in Pasadena, California, where he was the guest of honor for a discussion of the movie Avatar. I also got a couple of minutes to ask Cameron about his role in another project that you've heard about on Planetary Radio. Last time we talked, it was about Aliens of the Deep. You seem to be pretty comfortable going back and forth between the imaginary and the real world, and now yep. you're on the Mars Science Laboratory team. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's science and there's science fiction, and I, I understand the boundaries you know, between them. And, and being even my tiny, tiny part of the Mars Science Laboratory mission is very, very exciting for me. You know, I got, in, uh, I got involved with uh, the Malin Space Science Systems people years and years ago, and they put in a proposal and swept me up in their proposal uh, for the, uh, the MASCAM, which is the eyes of the, the Mars Science uh, Laboratory rover, because they said, well, who do we know that does motion imaging in 3D? Oh, that Cameron guy. You know, I was involved a little bit initially with the um, kind of setting the, the parameters for the, the stereo space of the of the camera and the zoom group uh, the zoom optics for the camera now the zoom has been descoped out of it we're trying to rescope it back in we don't know how that's going to work out quite yet I heard your lobbying I, I well I did lobby and and we, we did present a, a good case for it because of the push you know the mission was pushed two years because of other un- problems unrelated to, to mass cam but it gave us an opportunity to come back in and say for a very tiny incremental cost we can get much much more interesting imaging there's a small justification on the science side an enormous justification on the public outreach and, and, and uh, media side. So uh, we made a credible case and, and they're exploring it in, in good faith and we just we have some deadlines we have to hit uh, by the end of the year to actually get it integrated into the spacecraft but we'll see what happens. So we, we, may, we may be shooting the first 3D motion picture uh, on, on another planet for real. Thank you. By the way, I love Avatar. Okay, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a 3D movie on another planet. Not for real. Thanks very much. Okay, good talking to you. Another lovely day in Pasadena, California. A little freeway noise in the background because we're outside of the new Planetary Society headquarters. On the freeway. <laughs> Almost. We should do that in the center divider sometime. We'll do that some other time. Yeah, no, we're not actually on the freeway. <laughs> Just kidding, Caltrans, <laughs> CHP. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society because it's time for What's Up. Welcome back. Thank you. There's a little bird tweeting, too. Isn't that nice? Yeah. yeah. It is very lovely here. But let's talk about the lovely night sky, shall we? Please. Check out uh, Extremely Bright Venus over in the uh, west after sunset. Can't miss it. Go to the upper left of Venus. You will find Mars looking kind of reddish and keeps dimming. And if you look to the upper left of Mars, not as far, you'll see Regulus. And so that's your bright star for the episode. And then keep going. You'll find Saturn looking yellowish. And over the coming weeks and months, Mars, Saturn will be coming together. And then they'll be parting with Venus, and it'll be very exciting. Mm, yeah, it's another one of those when the moon is in the seventh house uh, era is coming again. So. <laughs> You're going to start singing, aren't you? <laughs> Not yet. I'll wait. The pre-dawn, check out Jupiter. 
in the east, looking extremely bright, can't miss it. And if you check out Saturn these days with a small telescope, rings nearly edge on, as much as they're going to be for 15 years. Check that out. On to this week in space history. Uh, in the Mercury program, 1962, Scott Carpenter launched with Aurora 7. A lot happened during this week. It was one of those uh, big weeks two years ago. Phoenix landed on Mars. We also had Abel and Baker, the monkeys, oh. flew to space in 1959. You ever see uh, The Road to Hong Kong, where Bing Crosby and Bob Hope are put into a space capsule, but it was really made for monkeys, <laughs> and so there's this robotic device that's trying to feed them banana paste? <laughs> yes, I did. I did see it. <laughs> We should try that sometime. Abel and Baker loved that movie. (laughs) (laughs) It was huge with them. We move on to Random Space Fact. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed that last week you went unplugged because the echo was so good in that room. I don't want to reveal any trade secrets here, but uh, let's just say that you were au naturel. Cool. Harkening back to the... uh, the time in the racquetball court. That's right, many years ago. Vesta, second largest asteroid in the uh, asteroid belt after Ceres, depending on how you measure it, but certainly mass-wise. Weird thing, it's got a crater, it appears, on uh, a near south pole that is huge compared to the size of the object. It is almost 80% of the diameter of the whole object. And this crater, which is through people waving their arms and making some guesses, educational guesses, perhaps a billion years ago. And it also kicked off a bunch of material, which we think is why there are Vesta meteorites. There are like 100 meteorites that we think are from Vesta based upon their spectral signature. And, of course, Dawn spacecraft going to Vesta will get there in in about a year to go into orbit, show us how cool this really is and we'll learn real stuff that is quite fascinating i love random space fact oh thank you we move on to the trivia contest and i asked you what was the largest optical telescope in 1940 how'd we do matt we bounced back this week lots of entries our winner and lots of other people said that it was the hundred inch Hooker Telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory, which we can almost see from where we're sitting. It's true. For for those pesky trees, we could at least see Mount Wilson. 1917 to 1948, it was the record holder before being replaced by the same guy, George Ellery Hale, with your former plaything. Yes, the the, the, Hale. the 200-inch Hale Telescope. An, yeah. Another amazing beast, which held the title for decades after that. George Ellery Hale, amazing guy. You know, you know what they say about George Ellery Hale? No, what do they say about George Ellery Hale? GE, he brings good light to things. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a thing. Guess what? Scott Borgsmiller. <laughs> Scott Borgsmiller, who is... You're really impressed with yourself, aren't you? I, I loved it, yeah. Thank you for that opportunity and bearing with me. Scott has been listening, I think, since like the beginning of the show. As far as I can tell, he's never won the contest. Scott, you're the winner. Ejimsville or Ijimsville, Maryland, he is getting The Eerie Silence, the terrific book about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence by Paul Davies, who was a guest on this show about uh, three weeks ago. So congratulations, Scott. Groovy tunes. We move on to the next trivia contest. I take you back to Vesta Meteorites. What are they called? 
What are the classes of Vesta meteorites? And uh, there's, a, there's three initials or three words for what these beasts are called, at least the things that we believe are from Vesta. Go to planetary.org radio, find out how to enter. And that shouldn't be too hard to find. Be sure that you get us your entry by Monday, May 31, 2 p.m. on May 31st. And we'll make sure you're part of the contest. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about palm trees. Thank you, and good night. Those aren't coconut palms, are they, that we're sitting under? Bad dates. <laughs> Write to us if you get the reference. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible in part by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation. Keep looking up. <laughs>